So we've been looking at the book of Jonah. Today we're going to look at chapter 2 of Jonah. I was reading a, an article just a couple of weeks ago about some of the amazing inventions that are being worked on right now that really could make a significant difference in this world. And these are some of the inventions that caught my eye. Some of them you've probably heard of, actually many of them you've heard of, maybe one you haven't yet. Uh, one is uh, the self-driving cars. We've been hearing a lot about this. Google's doing it. Apple's doing it. Mercedes is doing it. A lot of the car companies are working on this. Uh, but what they're saying is that if this ever happens and we really can trust these uh, computer-driven cars, it really could save a lot of lives. And judging by the way the public is uh, driving these days, I would tend to agree. It really could save a lot of lives. It would save a lot of time, uh, a lot of congestion, on our freeways and on our roads, and it would be a big game changer if that happens. Another invention that I've been curious about and have kind of watched the progress over the years uh, recently has been 3D printers. They're saying that one day these 3D printers actually could maybe save you from taking a trip to Home Depot where you could just print the part that you forgot to pick up when you were there or a tool. I don't know what Home Depot thinks about this, but wouldn't that be amazing if, if you wouldn't have to take the three or four trips to Home Depot every time you did a project around the house? You could just print what you forgot to pick up when you were there. One of the other ones that I think really could change a lot of people's lives in this world is, is an invention like this. It's called the Slingshot Water System. And this can distill and make clean water from just about any source. And it doesn't really require an external power source. And uh, it's very inexpensive in the way they're developing it. And that would be a game changer if something like that could be, you know, mass-produced and placed in uh, different parts of the world where it could really be used. I mean, the World Health Organization estimates that 3.4 million people die every year just from water-related diseases because 780 million people, they estimate, uh, have lack, they, they, they lack the access to clean water. 780 million. So if something like this could, could really get out there, it, it really would change our world in significant ways. But unless you're working on one of these inventions or a handful of the other world-changing inventions, the chances of you doing something that will change the world is, is probably pretty slim. Most of us you know, work ordinary jobs and we live ordinary lives. And clearly, we're not smart enough to really make much of a difference in this world. And so most people, that's the thinking, and most people then have settled for kind of a more attainable goal of building a comfortable life for themselves and kind of leaving the world and its problems uh, to itself. But it turns out that the most powerful world-changing force already exists. It doesn't, doesn't have to be invented. And not only that, it, it has been placed on the, the bottom shelf of life where everyone has access to it. Everyone can get to this. What I'm talking about is the life and world-changing power of God's amazing grace. Now, what people really do need more than self-driving cars and 3D printers and even clean water is the help and forgiveness of God. Grace is the power of God at work in an individual life. When you apply that power to sin, it not only forgives and cancels the debt of that person's sin, but it begins to turn around and rebuild out of the mess that that sin caused a different kind of life. It begins to change that person. When you apply God's grace to an insurmountable problem, day by day and step by step, God's grace makes a way through the maze of that problem, and before long, there's a solution where there never was a solution before. When you apply God's grace to weakness, people are able to do things and accomplish much more than they could by their own abilities and their own insights. 
So just imagine how different, say, your neighborhood or your job place would be if everyone there had God's power working in them, moving them to do what is right, and helping them to accomplish more than they could on their own. Imagine how different this country might be if everyone had accepted God's grace, or how different this world would be. It'd be a very different place. Now, I'm all for new inventions, and I'm pretty excited about a lot of the new ones that are coming up, but nothing else will ever come close to the power of God's grace to change this world. We're talking about Jonah, one of the most unlikely of all world changers in the pages of Scripture. We're learning from Jonah, a four-chapter book in the Old Testament portion of the Bible. And Jonah was a part of God's people, which means he had at some level, maybe intellectually, accepted God's grace in his life. We really don't know a lot of backstory to, to Jonah, so we don't know all of how this happened, but it's most likely that he had come to accept God's presence in his life and was trying to follow God. But the problem with Jonah is he had no interest in helping others find that grace. And this is often true of us. When it comes to grace, we, we tend to be one-sided. We're very grateful for it and, and open to it when we need grace. But when someone else needs grace, we're not as open, especially if that someone else is a person that we are struggling with or that have caused us harm or we have a problem with. And this was the case for Jonah. Jonah was not interested in grace for Nineveh, which was the capital city of Assyria. God had called Jonah to go to Nineveh. And Jonah knew that God was up to something, that God was most likely going to be offering his grace to this city, the capital city of Assyria. And he had friends that probably had died at the hand of the Assyrian army. So he had no interest in God's grace for them. So God decides to remind Jonah of his own personal need of grace. Jonah boards a ship to run away from God, heading in the opposite direction. God sends a storm that is so violent that the ship is getting ready to go under, and, and they throw Jonah into the sea because they discover that Jonah is running from God and that this storm is caused by God. And so they throw Jonah into the ocean, and the sea immediately calms. And then uh, a great fish, probably a whale, swallows Jonah. And God miraculously keeps Jonah alive in the belly of that fish for three days. And sitting in that fish for those three days, Jonah had a lot of time to think about his failures. And in chapter 2, we read a lot of what he says about his own failure. And you would think that failure would be a disqualifier from being a part of God's world-changing effort. I mean, if God was going to change the world and he was going to partner with people to do it, it makes sense to think that he would be trying to select kind of the A-plus people when it comes to um, his moral ways. And so failure would probably be a disqualifier to really be on God's team of change. But as Jonah discovered, failure is often a qualifier for being a messenger of God's grace, not a disqualifier. And the reason is because you can't speak honestly about something that you have not experienced in your own life. And so God often prepares people to carry the message of His grace by first letting them become significant recipients of His grace in their own life. So if you look back on your life and, and you can see several spots where you just made a mess of things, or if you're feeling like a failure right now, well, that's actually a good thing. I mean, it's not a good thing to mess your life up, but God can use the failure because you are in desperate need of God's grace. And I would say, don't ever forget that moment when you felt that way, or if you're feeling that right now, do not forget what this feels like. 
Because the world is absolutely full of people who feel just like you feel right now or just like you felt when you were failing. And there is only one solution for it, and that is God's grace. So if you're at a point of failure, then ask for God's grace and then get ready to share it. If God has taken you out of failure because of his grace, then be ready to share God's grace. Here is Jonah's amazing grace moment when he really came to grips again with how much he needs God's grace. It's found in Jonah chapter 2. I'm going to read this to you. It's 10 verses, so you can follow along with projected on the screen behind you. Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Here's what happens. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and My prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now in these ten verses, and in that fish, Jonah experienced a four-part process that is often true of those who accept God's grace. Part number one, step number one is this, hitting bottom. Hitting bottom. The price of admission at the door of God's grace is our pride. If we're going to accept God's grace, we have to humble ourselves. That's because God's grace is not a supplemental power source to help us occasionally. God's grace is an entirely new way to live life. So if we're just looking for a little boost up in life, a little supplement to a plan we already have and to a a goal that we've already set in mind, then God's grace is not the power source that's available for us. God's grace is only available to those who surrender their ways to God's ways and decide to do life God's way, and they submit to Him. And God's power will will not come over a person involuntarily. God's grace does not just descend on someone. It, It has to be asked for. It must be freely chosen. And that will not happen until we are convinced that our ways are not working and we surrender our ways to God's ways and we ask for his help. And that is not an intellectual event. This usually doesn't occur as you just sit there and ponder your ways compared to God's ways and you decide intellectually that you would prefer God's ways. That normally doesn't happen. Usually what happens is we realize our need for God's grace as we sit and ponder and particularly as we experience the mess that we've made of our own life. It's often at the bottom that we realize that our ways are not right. We we need a better way to live life. At that point, we're open to God's ways. So like Jonah, we often have to hit some kind of personal bottom before we are humble enough to ask for God's grace and submit to his ways. Now you would think in chapter 1, when the storm came, that that would have 
been enough to kind of shake Jonah and get his heart to submit to God. But if you were here last week, you remember that even in the middle of the storm, when it was clear that their life was in danger, Jonah went to sleep because he had checked out. He, he was mad. He was not going to yield to God for any reason at all. So the storm didn't get through to Jonah. Jonah had to sink even lower before his heart finally yielded before God. It wasn't until, as it says, as he says himself, he was hurled into the deep and the currents swirled around him and all the waves and breakers swept over him. It wasn't until, as it says, the engulfing waters threatened him, the deep surrounded him, seaweeds actually wrapped around his head and he's beginning to sink to the roots of the mountains. What he's describing here is the point at which he's done flailing in the water. He is wrapped up in seaweed. He can't thrash around anymore. He is sinking. And he is seconds away from his last moment on this world. And it wasn't until that point that his stubborn heart broke. It was, as he says, from the depths of the grave that he called for help. I mean, he didn't just have one foot in the grave. He was laying in there, and it was getting ready to be closed. And at that point, he called out to God for help. It wasn't on the ship. It was in the depths of the grave. It was in his distress that he called out to God. That's often the case, is we have to come to some kind of bottom where we are humble enough to ask for God's grace. Now, I wish that there was only one bottom per life. Like you just hit a bottom once, and then from that point on, you accept God's grace, and the trajectory of your life, it just, it just continues to go up. But that's not the case. The reason is because, sadly, our pride is, well, it's very stubborn. I mean, you'll notice in two weeks and just two chapters from now, Jonah hits yet another bottom, where his heart is hard again before God. And God has to bring another low spot into his life. Now, usually there tends to be one kind of more significant bottom in a breakthrough moment in a person's life that, that gets the grace of God beginning in someone's life. Not always, but oftentimes there, there's some kind of you know, momentous, life-changing bottom that turns someone's heart to God. But we have a notoriously short memory, and so even after that, God has to keep bringing us different bottoms before we can experience the next helping of his grace. And the bottoms are going to look different. They're going to have different circumstances around them, and they're going to have you know, different levels of gravity to them. But if, if, you are, if your life is sinking, my suggestion would be to surrender your heart early in the process. Don't wait until you get the seaweed wrapped around your head and you're taking your last breath. Now, surrender as early as possible would be my suggestion. Now, if you are watching someone else's life begin to crater, be very careful that you do not step in to rescue them before their heart has yielded to God. This is a very complicated thing to discern because it's really hard to tell by observing someone whether they really have hit bottom or not. I mean, there's many people that I've talked to who have just been in tears over a set of circumstances in their life, and I've just been convinced that this is their bottom. They really are turning to God. But oftentimes, over a period of time, it you know, takes time to really see whether someone's hit a bottom and you discover, no, they were just having a bad day. This wasn't their bottom. So we really can't tell. I mean, if it's someone new and 
and you're in a position to help, then I would err on the side of helping people. But if, if it's someone that you know and you, you've seen them kind of feign bottom after bottom and not really change, then I would recommend that you and anyone else you can advise step back and let God deal with them directly. They may have to go to a, bot, a Jonah-sized bottom. And that's hard for people that you love to watch them go through that. But it's the most critical thing in their life is whether they accept God's grace or not, not the circumstances that are surrounding them. So hitting bottom is the first part of the process. The second part is letting go. Jonah 2 verse 8, I think is the the summary statement that Jonah makes in these 10 verses. He says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. There there are two main options that we have in life for how we're going to live and power our life. Either we can take the help of God's grace, or we can cling with God-like intensity to worthless idols. Even people who decide that they're going to live life without God because they're independent and they can carry, carry forward with their own abilities, what they don't realize is they weren't designed to be independent. So even if they deny God, they're going to, they're going to grab a hold of something and they're going to white-knuckle something with God-like ferocity. Because none of us can make it on our own through life. We, we need some God. And if it's not the true God, then it will be a false God. Those are the true options. Now, an idol is quite simply a God replacement. In Jonah's day, the goddess Asherah was one of the popular idols. And here's a picture of what that, uh, a clay version of that idol would have looked like at this time, 3,000 years ago. And the goddess Asherah was said to be in control of the rain. So you can see how important this goddess was, especially to an agricultural community uh, when irrigation was still in its early stages of development. You really needed rain to literally to be alive for the next year. And so people would worship and sacrifice and pray to and serve this make-believe God. Now, idols are really a, a feeble attempt to deal with all of the uncertainty of life. In this case, for the goddess Asherah, was the uncertainty of the rains. So an idol promises to kind of manage or control the uncontrollableness of life. Now, in modern day, of course, we would never bow before a, a little clay object like that or think that that would represent you know, some goddess that would control the rain. Our idols are far more rational. But the idea behind our idols are still exactly the same. They promise a level of control in the middle of an uncontrollable and fearful world. Probably one of our top idols in this culture and most modern cultures is money. It's our favorite idol, and for good reason. It, it offers a great deal of control. I had a good friend years ago tell me, he said, you know, as I've looked back over the problems of my life, I can't think of very many problems that $100,000 wouldn't solve. I thought, you know, that, that 100, extra $100,000 would solve a whole lot of problems. Not every problem, but quite a few problems. And so because of that, we realize that with money, you, you can just do a lot more with money, and it's not bad. And without money, you have less control of your life. But rather than just decide, you know what, money's important and so I need to manage it wisely, what we tend to do is we tend to grab a hold of it like it's an idol. We white-knuckle it with our money. We, we watch the money, not just manage it, but we watch it go in and out of our accounts with kind of a desperation that belies the fact that, that it's an idol for us. Our emotions rise and fall with the stock market and with, the, with our accounts. It becomes an idol. 
Sometimes we raise a person to idol status, to God-level status. And we cling to them with, with the desperation of someone we're not just relating to or befriending or caring for, but we're actually worshiping them. We don't just want their love. We, we need their love and attention. So we try to control them rather than love them. And under the pressure of, of that, those relationships either get really strange or they just fracture under the pressure of that. Because nobody is worthy of being a God replacement. No relationship can handle that kind of pressure over time. Sometimes we pick a, a pattern of life, like anger or passiveness or busyness, and we use that to increase our sense of control, and that pattern actually becomes kind of like an idol for us. I mean, the truth is there's, there's just a whole lot of life that you can't control. But no matter what's going on around you, you can always be angry. You can always be passive if that's your choice. You can always be busy. And sometimes people just choose those parts of life and those patterns as a way of just pushing all of the uncertainty of life away and focusing on, well, I can always be angry. I can always be passive. I can always be busy. And there's other patterns that they choose. Or what's very common is, you know, we cling to an experience that has a predictable outcome. An experience that can be generated maybe by a chemical, a drug, or an alcohol, or a sexual experience. The truth is, we don't know what's going to happen today. The future is hidden from us. It's unknown. But we do know if I drink that bottle and if I take that drug, I know how I'm going to feel. Or I do know how sexual activity feels. And so we begin to use these things as a way of carving out just a small little space in our life that, that is guaranteed, that's knowable that experience, that feeling. And what happens is the clinging to these things becomes an addiction. What we don't realize is that when we grab a hold of things like this for the purpose of managing our emotions and our uncontrollable life, we are clinging to them, but what's actually happening is they are beginning to cling to us. And even if we get to the point where we try to let go, we discover they don't let go of us. We find ourselves trapped in patterns of addiction that well, that oftentimes needs God's grace to begin to break. We just simply hate the fact that we are in control of so little in this life. It's a very scary thing for us. So we will, out of fear, we will cling to almost anything. Now, our idols may make us feel better in a fearful world for just a moment, but as long as we cling to them, we, as Jonah says, we can't get the help of God. So the question we have to continually ask ourselves is, what are we clinging to? What, where are the white knuckles of our life right now? Where is the place where you find your mental and emotional knuckles wrapped around something tight? And we need to let go of that. Usually it begins by acknowledging it verbally to God and to other people, saying, you know what, I, I'm not just using money. I'm freaking out about money. I'm not just struggling with this chemical, I, I'm addicted to this. This relationship is, it owns me. And I, I, need, I need to let go. I, I need help. And begin to take the steps to do it. Letting go is, is usually, it has a beginning point, but it's never just as easy as done. Because as I said, it, our idols grab a hold of us, not just us of them. So hitting bottom letting go, and then the third step is showing up. 
Not only do we cling to idols, but the other side of this key verse, Jonah says, we, we also forfeit the grace that could be ours. What does it mean to forfeit something? Let's say there's, you know, you're part of a soccer team and there's a soccer match that's scheduled, your team and another team. And you show up and the other team doesn't. What happens? Well, it's a forfeit. Forfeit occurs when you just don't show up. And because you don't show up, then the game is forfeit. A couple weeks ago, I was waiting at the corner of Edinger and Gothard, and you may know there's a mixed martial arts um, gym right on the corner there, and they've, they've been so kind as to put glass all the way around the outside and put the, uh, the ring right on the edge so you can see people sparring in there. And so I was, the light was pretty long one, and so I, I was watching two guys spar uh, in the MMA, the mixed martial arts thing. And as I watched that, I, I concluded once and for all, I will never do that. Especially at my age, I'm, I'm not crawling into that ring. I don't care how much padding they put on me, and I, I'm, just, I'm just not going to do that. And I got to thinking as I was driving away, I don't know how many of you know Tito Ortiz. Here's a picture of him in uh, fighting shape. He is the, the bad boy of Huntington Beach. He's kind of made MMA uh, really famous, and he's, from, uh, he's got a gym here. Um, and I thought, you know, if Tito Ortiz scheduled a match with me, I know exactly what I'd do. I'd do this thing, right? I would not show up. I wouldn't just go home. I might leave the country for a while to make sure this, whatever craziness was going on. I know he's retired, but I don't know if you've seen, I've seen him at a few times, you know, at the 4th of July, I saw him once. I mean, the guy's scary just walking around, retired. So there's no way I would show up. Why? Obviously, I'm no match for him. I mean, look at him. I'm no match for him. This is what many people do with God's grace. Everybody, pretty much, if they think very long about it, they realize that they are no match uh, when it comes to God's moral standards and, and his, what he requires. Even if you haven't read the Bible very much, you, you have a pretty clear idea that here's the standard and here's where you are, or here's where you are. But there's, there's a big distance between here. And so when it comes to God... Most people just decide, I'm not going to show up. They may say it like, yeah, I'm not religious, or I'm not into that kind of thing, or I don't need that kind of thing. But often what's driving it is like, I'm not that kind of person. You don't understand, I'm not that good. I, I could never measure up to God's standards. And what they don't realize is that weakness is God's invitation to grace, not a reason to run. It's the very reason why you should run to God is because there's this distance and because God intends to meet you by, by his grace, exactly where you are, at your point of weakness, at your point of failure. But many people don't understand that. They think of it like Tito Ortiz scheduling a match with me. You know, God versus Bevan. Yeah, I'm not showing for that one. So they, they forfeit and the way we forfeit is, is not just generally with God, but usually it's in, in areas where, where we are failing. We all have places where success seems unlikely to us, if not completely impossible. And what we tend to do is we tend to have a no-show in those areas. We just check out. Either we don't actually physically show up to deal with those responsibilities, or we just check out on the inside and give in to despair. I mean, why keep showing up in, a, let's say, a difficult marriage when nothing seems to change? 
when the two of you just keep talking around the same thing and there's no progress to me, why show up? I mean, it's, it seems like it's, there's no point to it. Or why keep trying to guide your child back to God when maybe they've made it clear that they want no part of God and maybe even they don't want any part of you? Why keep initiating in that relationship? Or why keep going to church when life is getting worse, not better? And I could go on and on. The truth is, God will invite you and me to a time and a place where he wants to offer us his grace. He will set up an appointment for us, a grace appointment. But like Jonah, the invitation will have failure written on it, not God's grace. I mean, if the invitation was, hey, show up July 1st at the pier, my grace will appear. Well, I mean, we might step back a little bit from the pier to kind of see what it looks like, but we would know God's grace is going to show up there. But that's not the way God shows up with his grace. He says, you know that marriage you keep struggling with? Keep showing up there. You know that the parenting challenge? Keep showing up there. You know that financial hole that you dug yourself in? Keep showing up and being responsible there. You know the church you made a commitment to and you're struggling with? Keep showing up there. Just keep showing up. Keep showing up. Well, God, when? When's your grace? Well, see, the invitations don't come with a time stamp. God's invitations of grace never comes with a date and a time. It just says, keep showing up. And at a time of my choosing, I will show up. But you won't know the day. And you don't want to sleep in and miss the day when I decide to show up with my grace. So you just have to keep showing up. You don't want to forfeit the greatest gift that God could ever give you, his grace, and the greatest gift you could ever share with anyone else. Now, the Bible is full of people who kept showing up again and again and again in the areas of their responsibility. And then years and sometimes even decades later, God's power was displayed. If they hadn't been there on that day, if they'd shown up for 21 years, and on the second day of the 22nd year, God's grace was going to show up, but they decided, you know, forget it. They would have missed it. They would have forfeited the chance to see God's grace. I mean, Moses is one example of this. Moses, from the moment he was born, he was supposed to lead Israel out of captivity. That was clear. God had made that clear. You're, you're, you're the one that's chosen to lead me out of cap- lead the people of, of God out of captivity. But then... He grew up in Pharaoh's court, had, had everything going. Things looked like it was heading in the right direction. And then he got mad one day. He saw an injustice, and he killed the person who was causing the injustice. He lost it. He made, he made a terrible mistake, and he had to flee for his life. There was no way he was going to be a leader now. Forty years later, now 40 years, I'm 56, I can imagine 40 years, but that's about all I can imagine. 40 years later, Moses was a shepherd on the backside of a desert, absolutely certain of the failure of his life. But one day, he showed up to tend his sheep in that desert, as he had been doing for decades. And on that one particular day, there was this burning bush and the voice of God speaking out of it. And the rest... Well, the rest is history. You know the rest of that story. Forty years of showing up before that day. What if Moses had decided at the end of the 39th year, this is ridiculous. God had told me I was going to be a leader. 
All I'm doing is chasing sheep around the backside of a desert. I'm done. He would have missed that appointment. David, the greatest king in Israel's history, was anointed by God's prophet Samuel as the future king of Israel. He was, he was told by the prophet that you will be the king. But he had a bunch of brothers that thought very different than that. And most importantly, he had the current king that thought very differently than that. So his brothers went off to defend Israel in a particular battle, but not David. Why? Well, David's father wanted him to help with the sheep. I mean, how humiliating is that? I mean, that's not what you add to your resume to become a king. So where were you in the great battle of the Philistines? Uh, I was taking care of the sheep at home. Oh, that's that's perfect resume for, for military leadership. David knew this. It was humiliating to him. And that's not all. In the middle of that battle, David's father asks him to carry lunch to his brothers who are on the front lines. So not only does he have to stay home and tend to the sheep, he has the humiliation of going up as a food service guy, delivering food to the men who were in battle. Again, you don't want anyone to ever see you doing that if you plan on being king one day. But you see, David showed up. He showed up to tend the sheep, again with the sheep. And then he showed up to deliver the humiliating job of delivering food to his brothers. And as he's delivering food to his brothers, he hears the taunt of Goliath. And the rest of that story, you probably know. We all know about David now. Why? Because David was amazing? No, because God's grace was displayed through David. But why? Because David showed up. If David had run off to make his fortune, he would have missed the appointment of God's grace. Jesus, he showed up in the Garden of Gethsemane the low point of his life. He knew that it was a trap. He knew that Judas was going to come and betray him. He knew that he was going to be arrested. He knew that he was going to be crucified. He knew that death was certain. But he showed up. Three days later, he walks out of the grave, and history is forever changed. So keep showing up, wherever it is. Don't give up. Keep showing up. God will meet you there. I don't know when, and I don't know how. But that's how God delivers it. That's the invitation of his grace. Show up at your point of weakness, at your point of responsibility, and watch for my grace. And then the fourth process is giving thanks. The fourth part of the process is giving thanks. After God displays his grace in your life, it doesn't take long for us to forget what he has done and to go back to thinking about all that we have done. This is just amazing how this happens to us. We're in a tight spot. God comes through. He delivers his grace. And then we're grateful for a little while. And then we just get all fuzzy-headed about what actually happened back there. And as time goes forward and we look back, we see more and more of what we did and less and less of what God did. And that just starts the cycle all over again. When God sees that, he's like, all right, elevator's going down. In some area, the cycle begins again. But there is one thing that tends to stop this process, and that is thanksgiving. Here's what Jonah says. He says, but I, kind of the idea is in contrast. I know everyone else doesn't, but I am 
with a song of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Why? Salvation comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from me. It wasn't me that got myself swallowed by this fish. It wasn't me that got burped out, smelling awful on the land. It was God that did this. Salvation comes from him. So Jonah says, I'm not going to forget, God, what you've done. He's going to sing a song of thanksgiving. Now, you don't have to sing your song of thanksgiving. You can state it. But it's important for us to be grateful for God's grace in our life. And this will not occur naturally. We have to be intentional about this. We, we just move forward. We maybe pause for a moment, yeah, thank, and then we're, we're forward. We, we need to intentionally take the time to look back and be grateful. Jonah gives us a couple of examples of how to be intentional about this. What he says is, he said, God, I'm going to sacrifice to you. Now, in this time, this was involved partly in asking for God's forgiveness, but it also involved him making a tangible sacrifice, a gift to God. Not because God needs it, of course, but because it's a statement saying, I know that what I have has more to do with your grace than my ability. I look back over my life and I don't see all of me and my amazingness. I see maybe 2% of my effort and I see 98% of you providing for me. You gave me this opportunity. You allowed me to meet this person. You gave me the breath that allowed me to be alive that day when this opportunity took place. You're why this happened. Yes, I was there. Yes, I had a role, but oh, it was so small compared to what you did. I look back and I and I'm, I'm going to give this sacrifice to you because I realize it's not me, it's you. So Jonah said, I'm, I'm going to sacrifice to you. And then he says, what I have vowed, I will make good. What does he mean by this? Well, at the bottom, whenever we hit the bottom, usually at that point, we're pretty clear about what we need to stop doing and what we need to start doing. One of the things about hitting bottom is it's about the clearest moment of our life. All of our arrogance is stripped away. We're not blinded by our own self-importance. And we really see ourselves and we really see the future with clarity. And usually it's at that point that we will tell God, God, if you will rescue me, I will take action on this. I will, I will stop doing this. I will start doing that. I will make amends for this. I will clean that up, whatever it is. But then, as we begin to go back up from the bottom, life gets a little better, and what we decided to do starts sounding like a lot of work, and maybe just a bit extreme. And so we don't make good on our promises. And it's an indication that we're just returning to our old ways. It was just a moment. It wasn't a turning point for us. Giving thanks is is a critical part of this process. Because giving thanks strips away our arrogance. It tells us, no, we're not self-made people. It's 2% us, 98% God. Or whatever the percentage is, but something like that. Now, I don't know what part of the story of God's grace that you're in. I mean, maybe you're, to use Jonah's storyline, you're, you're in day two, sitting in the stinky inside of a fish. And it's dark. And I would say, from Jonah's story, don't give up. God loves to write fish stories like Jonah's. Not stories where people go, is that true? But stories of of his amazing grace. You know, I I believe that one of the great activities of heaven is going to be swapping God-sized fish stories. I think that's part of what we're going to be doing. You know, I'll be telling someone, you know what? This is what happened in my life, and it looked like it was, uh," and then God came through, and he did what? 
And then someone else said, well, listen to what God did in my life. It won't be, listen to what I did. And then God came through here, and then the impossible happened here, and then right when it was almost over, then God showed up and did this. And it'll be part of what we do. And the question I have is, do you have a God-sized fish story? What, what would you say? Do you, do you have something? If not, then you need to go through this process. God-sized fish stories always start at the bottom. That's the beginning. In the beginning, you were at the bottom. At some point, some point in your life. Maybe on the outside, no one would even guess you're at the bottom, but you know, in this part of your life, you're at the bottom. God-sized fish stories always start at the bottom. So don't fight the bottom. And then God-sized fish stories always require us to let go of our false gods. So stop clinging to whatever your idol is or idols are. And then God-sized fish stories are always written by those who keep showing up. It may be 40 years like Moses. It may be three days like Jonah. It may be 15 years like David. I don't know. What I do know is if you don't keep showing up, you're not going to get a God-sized fish story. And then God-sized fish stories are always told by the grateful, not the arrogant. Those who just, they just will never get over what God's done in their life. They wake up most mornings just shaking their heads. They, I, can't, I can't believe what God's done. I can't believe I'm alive. I can't believe I get this chance. So be grateful. So I've got some next steps for you to consider as we begin to wrap up. These are on the back side of your connection card, the upper left-hand side, as well as the bottom of your listening guide. First of all, I think it'd be helpful for, for us to take some time this week and, and try to identify our idols. What, I mean, it doesn't look like that clay little goddess Asherah, but what does it look like? And if you're not really sure, look for where the white knuckles of your emotions or your thoughts are active. That's often wrapped around some something that you've elevated to God-level status. And if, if you identify those, then, then tell someone. And begin to let go of those things. Begin the process. Number two, identify the location of your grace invitation. Where, where is the point of weakness? Where is the point of failure? Where is the point of responsibility where God says, you need to keep showing up here? I know inside you, you, you're losing hope, but this is where you need to show up. I'm going I'm to show up. At some point, you need to keep showing up. So you're there when I'm there. Where is that? It's very important to understand where those are. And then lastly, I would encourage you to memorize Jonah chapter 2, verse 8. This is the key verse in this chapter where it says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. That's a very important verse, and I would encourage you to memorize that. Jonah chapter 2, verse 8. Let's pray together. Father, we... Um, we confess our arrogance to you. We live in a time and a culture which is very similar to all other times in that it's what we tend to do is talk about our accomplishments and we measure ourselves by each other and we just leave you out of the equation. And we recognize, honestly, as we look back that if you hadn't given us life, of course, none of this would have happened. If you hadn't given us the minds you've given us, the gifts you've given us, the opportunities that we have given, 
we could have been born in a very different part of this world and had absolutely none of the opportunities that we've had. So we recognize that your hand of grace has been on us. And we confess our arrogance. We confess allowing other people to to elevate us beyond where we really should be or us elevating other people beyond where they should be when you really are the only one that deserves the credit. I pray for those who are at or near the bottom. God, I pray that you would turn their hearts to you so that they could experience the grace that could be theirs. And then that you would help us be willing to share this grace with those around us as they hit their bottoms, as they struggle to let go of their idols. God, help us to remember our own struggle as we help them. We pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.